Right, so we've got a, another fun passage today. Uh, so here's my question to begin with. Um, do you consider yourself to be a people person? You, I'm not sure whether you, you may not know what that means. Um, people seem quite surprised when I say uh, that I'm an introvert. Um, and generally, I don't like spending a lot of time around people. Um, but even so, um, I love to host events. Um, and having spent uh, over 20 years uh, yeah, primarily dealing with teenagers, um, who can be difficult at times, um, uh, but also difficult colleagues and even more difficult parents, uh, and one or two absolutely lovely parents who might be in the room, might or might not be in the room. Um, I would say that I have gained, despite some kind of uh, my social anxiety at times and awkwardness, um, I have gained the ability to have good relationships with people. So I would say that, you know, I'm generally well respected and well liked in my school. And so some would call, say that I am a people person. Um, how about you? Would, you? would you say that you're a people person? Would you say that you like being around people? What is the state of the relationships you have with the people around you? Maybe your colleagues, uh, maybe uh, your family? Because these are the people you spend most time with, isn't it? I mean, your friends, <laughs> less so. Your family, who you live with, your colleagues who see you day in and day out when you're, when you're enthusiastic, but also when you're tired, what is your relationship with them like? Is it fair to let them judge your character? Would it be fair for them to make a character assessment for you? Or do you think that's a fair judgment of their condemnation of yours? Uh, of you. I don't know. I mean, sorry. So the, the passage today, we're going to look at today, uh, another fun passage, cuts right to the core of these relationships, the people who see us the most. Paul is talking about our families. And I hope that you see as a, as a consequence of, um, of what I'm going to say is also our workplaces. Nine verses but very packed, so I'm afraid I'm going to be a little bit longer than I uh, normally would be uh, because we've got to unpack quite a lot and uh, talk quite a lot about these verses. So if you've got your, the Bibles in front of you, turn to Colossians 3. So we've been doing a series on Colossians and um, we've finally reached this one. So Colossians 3, verse starting from verse 18, and we're, go uh, we're going to uh, chapter 4, verse 1. So verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, that's slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleases, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, 
knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let me pray as we go on. Father, we thank you for our families. We thank you for our wives. We thank you for our husbands. We thank you for our lovely children who never disobey us or misbehave. Lord, we thank you for wonderful bosses and employees. Lord, we pray that you bless those relationships and you bless us, uh, bless them through us, Lord. As we learn to love you more, we learn to love them more as well. Amen. So before you think that uh, Craig just hands off all the, the fun verses, the chapters to me, I, uh, a couple of weeks ago he asked me uh, which I'd, you know, he'd put me down for last week and then uh, instead I, I said, oh, well I've got Chinese New Year to prepare for this, so why don't you give me this, uh, the next one. That was before I read the passage. <laughs> so uh, I'll make a quick exit out the back afterwards. And if you've got any questions, you can come and ask Craig. Um, well, we were getting very comfortable with Colossians, weren't we? We were learning about false teachers. And some of us were probably thinking and laughing at what <laughs> foolishness these people in, um, back in Jesus' time, back in Paul's time, what foolishness some people would believe. That's not to say there aren't cults nowadays who would try and persuade you uh, to believe something else, or that there, you know, people will some even some churches will convince you to be a Christian. You need to do this extra thing. But generally, most of us are fairly good, especially those of us who are here, are fairly good at avoiding these cults um, and knowing and just realizing when there's something slightly odd going on. And then there's verse 17. Let's look down and make sure I'm che check that I'm saying things right. Verse 17 says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the, uh, the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him, and most, uh, yeah, through him, sorry. And most of us are nodding and saying, yes, we can do that. We can promise to do that. And then Paul gets personal. Wives. All of a sudden, you're, you're, you're kind of comfortable, and then it pinpoints you. Wives, husbands, fathers. Then we're not quite so comfortable. Everyone's looking around at the, the women in the church. This is directed at you. And maybe the men are a bit smug. And then it says, husbands. And we're looking around at the husbands and pointing to them. And children. And there are a couple of children here. Because Paul is basically challenging each member of the house. And when he says, fire slaves and masters, bondservants and masters, I hope that you will see that this can directly be applied to our relationships as employees and employers. But I will come back to that. And hopefully you'll agree that, that those teachings can be, have a knock-on effect to us, I think, 
Just about everyone here is an employer or an employee of some sort. But I have to be careful uh, because when it comes to passages like, passage like this, it's very easy to be too defensive and to try and water it down or soften the blow. This word submit or obey, the, these two words, they're a hard word for us. Growing up in the UK at a very patriotic school, I always thought the, the words to the, the song Rule Britannia, if you know it, you, it's a ridiculous song. It's very nationalistic. It's more than just patriotic pride. There is a line in it that says, Britons never, never, never will be slaves. When we say the words submit and obey, it gets our backs up. We have the same foolish defensiveness in John 8. When Jesus starts talking about slaves, they retort straight away, we are offspring of Abraham and we have never been enslaved to anyone. Such is human pride that our freedom is the thing that we often take pride in the most. And I see that among the teenagers that I teach. The freedom that they want. They burst against these rules, not realizing actually that the rules are there for them to, to best guide them to be most productive. And within those guidelines, they can be incredibly productive. As God has given us these guidelines, So when we are asked, and note that we are being asked and advised, not told, note that Paul is not, uh, Paul's teaching is not that we should add to the gospel. So if you are a disobedient child, if you are a non-submitting wife, or you are a harsh husband, that does not mean that you cannot be a Christian. But these are, this is advice from, God, uh, from Paul, from God, about how best to live. Let me make that clear. We sometimes, as Christians, when we are advised to submit we or obey, we are often forgetting who is doing the ask, asking. Let's look back. If you've got your Bibles in front of you, look. just flick back to chapter 1, verse 19. Who is asking us to submit? Who is asking us to obey? For in him, that's Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Philippians 2, chapter 2, verse 5 takes it further. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
For there is no other faith, no other religion in the world where God himself comes down in the form and submits himself, obeys his father to one of the most gruesome, painful deaths in history. It is what we call grace, that God did this for us. That substitutionary sacrifice, what C.S. Lewis calls the uniqueness of Christianity, grace, this submission of the Lord Jesus Christ to death for us on the cross. And so wives and children here, when the Bible asks you to submit, when employees, when the Bible asks you to obey, It is wrong for anybody who is preaching the word of God to try and change the meaning of that word to say that this is a context for the first first century. Because who is is doing the asking? It's Jesus, isn't it? The one who did not consider equality something to be grasped. He had the power to stop the Romans. He had the power to deny the Jewish authorities. But you may be thinking, well, but you don't know my husband. You don't know how frustrating he can be, how constantly wrong he is, how failed and fallen he is. You don't have to live with him. You don't know my parents. Just how annoying they can be, how uncool they are. Again, how wrong they are, how they don't know my life. You see, Jesus submitted to the Jewish authorities who hated and rejected him and planned to kill him, who told lies about him. Jesus submitted to the Romans who beat him and tortured and killed him. And though he could have prevented it with a word at any point, he chose not to. Because he was doing it for his Father in heaven and for the God's greater glory. Is your husband or your parent any worse than the Jewish authorities or the Romans? Of course, there is the fact that God's authority takes precedence, precedence, So if your husband or your parent, uh, for the order of the authority in the house, means that the wife is, if the wife is submitting to the husband, the obedience of the child should also be made to their mother as well. They should be made, you should be uh, obeying your mother as well. Let me make that clear. Is asking you to do something, if they're asking you to do something ungodly or illegal or dishonoring to God, then obviously your obedience is to God first. So let me make that clear. But where it's not, where it's not illegal, where it's not dishonoring God, it may be, in your mind, stupid, foolish, wrong, but the Bible is still saying that you should submit. And you may be thinking, well... It's easy for God, uh, sorry, Jesus to submit to God. He had this perfect relationship with God, and God, God didn't do stupid things. God didn't do annoying things, or God didn't do silly, kind of, just wrong things. So I'm going to 
point you instead to Craig and, in fact, any gospel worker. It used to be that the clergy would wear a ring as their marriage to God, as a sign of their marriage to God. They will question, they will debate, they will even argue about the will of God. But ultimately they will obey. What I'm not saying, wives, is that you shouldn't disagree, voice your opinion, argue. But when it comes down to the bottom line, the Bible is asking you to submit. With children, Sorry, batteries have run out. Can you hear me at the back? Okay, I'm going to continue uh, with that for a while. Um, so, children, uh, there is room for disrespectfully disagreeing, voicing your opinion. Hopefully your parents will allow that. But again, at the end of the day, the Bible asks you to obey. Before I go to, to those who are probably sitting a little bit more comfortably and upset the rest of the congregation, I want to take a moment to consider, uh, us to consider how unbelievably groundbreaking this teaching would have been. In this time, in the Jewish culture, women's opinions were not important. Women were not allowed to learn the scriptures. In this time, for Paul to directly address wives was an astounding thing for a Jew. For Paul to go on to address husbands on how to treat their wives would also be taboo, if not more so than today in the Roman Empire. And in many cultures, children were often considered unimportant. I was told that children under the age of one were actually not even considered to be alive. You could just store them under the bed, in, you know, in drawers under the bed. If they died, it doesn't matter because they're not considered to be alive. So for Paul to be addressing children and fathers, wives and husbands, that we can't understand how groundbreaking these statements are. So, husbands. And I wonder if a few men and not a few women in the room may be thinking, what is this uh, single man who has no wife or children? What right does he have to lecture me about these things? I say that primarily to husbands because generally I know that we as men do have a lot of pride and as a, you know as a, as a teacher someone comes in and asks me about my teaching I, I do get defensive straight away that's my yeah but whilst I hope I need not remind people that I that I am hoping that I can, I'm just expounding what is said here and that I'm encouraging to you to have your Bibles open that you can see that what I'm saying makes sense with what's going on down here. And doing so for the love of this church. But also to remind you that Paul was also a single man. 
Husbands, let me warn you that that last statement was not for you. Paul did not write that statement to wives. He addressed wives. Do not go home and put up a sign that says, wives submit to your husbands. Children obey your, your fathers. Because those are addressed to wives and to children. It is not saying, what husbands, go home and make your wives submit to you. Please do not read that. In fact, the next statement, two husbands, I consider just as difficult, if not more so. Let me tell you a little bit about my week in Hong Kong. So I went to Hong Kong to visit my parents. By the time I reached there, I had a relatively late flight. It was about one o'clock in the morning. I was tired and I just wanted to check my messages, change, shower and go to bed. So I asked for the internet password and my parents said, oh, you need to log into Elgar. That's the name, the internet network name. I say, yes, what's the password? And by about the fifth time, still say, you need to log into this network. I was, uh, I, I was aware that I was preaching on this passage, and I managed not to say any harsh words to them. Yes, I succeeded. One day, I succeeded. The next night, I was doing some work, when again, I was interrupted by my mum, asking me if I'd had enough to eat. That's fine. That's lo lovely. My mum does that, and that's what mums do. To make sure that I had enough water the next time, to bring me some fruit. To tell me that I was a bit, uh, a bit, bit ill because I hadn't had my uh, vitamin supplements. Then disturbing again to bring me the said supplements in copious amounts, much more, three times more than the recommended daily intake. <laughs> to bring me some tea, even though I didn't want any tea. To ask me what my plans were for the next day. I was doing some work. Mum, I'm doing some work. <laughs> constant interruptions and again I was very hard pressed not to say harsh words the next day I have to confess I failed I had harsh words with my father he was using me as an excuse not to go out and I know my friends the ones who can be demanding my patience can be short and I have harsh words if I feel that they are being foolish. That's just my friends, that's not my family who live with me. You see how easy it is for us to wound our loved ones with harsh words when we think they're being foolish or we're just tired. How easy is it for us to have harsh words? Husbands, try it this week. See how long you last. <laughs> Just one week, see whether you can survive one week without a single harsh word. It's hard, isn't it? And I don't think I'm overstepping my bounds when I want to bring in the teachings from a parallel passage in Ephesians 5. Some of you know it well, but if you want to, you can flip to it. Ephesians 5. I forget which verse. I've got it copied down here. Uh, husbands... Yeah. 5.25. 5.25. Ephesians 5.25. Paul says, 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her. You see, Jesus lived and died that his people might go to heaven. Do you think that the disciples weren't foolish at times? Yes, they were foolish. And they were silly. And they were presumptuous. And they did, they were very wrong. <coughs> Harsh words. Husbands, how much do you consider your wives? Have you considered what is best for them? Have you talked to them? Have you prayed with them and prayed for them? Have you made career choices considering what is best for your wife? And saying all of that, back to wives, wouldn't you be happy to submit to a man like that who did that for you? Someone who is always gentle with you and respectfully considering your needs above theirs. Not like an indentured servant, no. Not like a slave, but a wise leader of your household. But you too must set an example by being what God asks of you first. You see, Paul is not saying to wives, you have to put me first. He is saying that to husbands. Both parties must look at their look to themselves to change first, not to try and change their partner. As motivational speakers today will say, 2,000 years after Paul says this, you have to be the change. You've heard that? You be the change. And then you will change those around you. So wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. And children, God is asking for obedience from you. When your parents tell you to go to bed on time, when your parents tell you to study instead of watching YouTube or watching the TV, when your parents tell you that you shouldn't be wearing that or tell you that you shouldn't go to this party or hang out with those friends, do you obey them only when it suits you? I obeyed my mum my today. That's a, that's a good day. That's, yeah, I'm obeying the Bible. I'm honouring God. But not the other day. Or will you do everything sh- uh, short of what is illegal and honoring, uh, dishonoring God to obey your parents. So you obey your parents in everything except what is Ill- illegal and dishonoring God. Is that true? I can say that as a, as a child I certainly didn't. Interestingly, the Bible only considered the end of childhood when someone gets married. So that would include me. We can, I think, I think we can contextually read, read the Bible saying that when we leave home, as in we are no longer living with our parents, but that's up to you to decide. 
I think the words are still very valid to those of us who, who don't then go on to lead our own families, obey our parents. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Here I can relate and, and weigh in with some experience, not because I'm a father, and again, not because, and, and I'll talk about that in a minute. It's easy when children are becoming annoying, spoilt, selfish brats, to just do something to spite them, isn't it? One of the lessons I learned in the first few years of teaching, and I'm still learning, is how easy it is to fall into the trap of being in an antagonistic relationship with students or with a class. Except as a parent, unlike a teacher, as a parent, and this is where you know, I, I know I would fail, you don't get a fresh start with a new class. You don't only get them for 45 minutes a day. You don't get taught how to be a parent, nor do you get a break from them sometimes. When they are constantly, and this is where I, I don't know how primary school teachers do it, because they have children the whole day. I maybe get to uh, the difficult child, yes they're teenagers, and yes can, uh, they can be very clever at winding you up, but I get them for at most an hour. And then they go away, I can get rid of them, <laughs> breathe a sigh of relief, but then the next, next load come, but, you know, I steal myself and let's go. It's a different group, different struggles. Having your child with you, especially during holiday time, 24-7, so easy to get into that antagonistic relationship. Yes, they need to be taught lessons. Yes, you need to be firm at times. But if you're not fair, if you don't explain that what you are doing is for their own good, if you are retaliating or being spiteful, if you don't set an example in your apologies when you do something wrong, yes, I'm encouraging you to apologize to your children when you do something wrong. That is one of the greatest lessons one of my former colleagues taught me was be ready to apologize to a class. You will provoke them and discourage them. And their salvation is your responsibility. Finally, and perhaps most importantly for the majority of us here, slaves and masters, bond servants and masters. But Sam, don't be silly, there are no slaves and masters nowadays. Now, if Paul can ask someone who has no pay, no prospects, is treated with no respect or dignity to obey their masters, how much more can he ask us as employees, how much more can he ask wives or children to submit and obey? Some of you know that I've recently inv uh, invested in a board games uh, shop. My manager I really get on with, his name is, his name is Fred, he's a great guy. Um, and he kind of sees me as boss and I kind of badger him. 
but he is kind of his own boss. You see, he works incredibly hard, and even though he does see me as, as boss, uh, I probably don't tell him how grateful and proud I am of him. You see, Fred works hard because he's working for himself, and he's working for something he loves. How much more should we be working for God? The creator God who gave us everything, and I mean everything. Who doesn't love food? It's an amazing thing. One of my friends once said, fruit is so amazing. It's, it's, free, it's, it's, it's sweet stuff that grows on trees. And she used to get so excited. And we miss how amazing that is. Sweet stuff that grows on trees. Steak. Mashed puddings, chips with gravy. Sorry, I can go, I can go on. I, I, I love food. God gave us this. The beauty of art and landscapes and places and people. Yes, there are beautiful people who we can just sit and enjoy. You're allowed to do that. Not lust. You enjoy beautiful people. The joy of music and friendship. The comfort of family at homes, not to mention that he died for you so that he can restore a relationship with you and a certain promise of eternity without pain or tears. How hard is it working for that person who gave you everything? You see, the flip side is it's easy in our work lives to not do that, isn't it? When your boss isn't watching, how often do we, how often do we slack off? Do we really give our best when doing the menial parts of the job? The bits that seem beneath us or when a colleague has not done their share, so you have to take up their share? Or when the boss asks us to do something that we don't think is in our job description. I know that when my ideas aren't listened to, when I think that I'm trying to do the best for the good of the school or for the good of the students and the senior management, oh, they accept it, they're fine, they don't give me any support or appreciation. There's always a big voice in my head that says, well, if they're not going to support you, if they're not going to appreciate you, just don't do it. If they're not grateful, why should I do it again? Or why should I do my best? You see, whichever school I, I've been in, I always give a lot of extra stuff to the school. I run after school <coughs> clubs and lessons and competitions. And in my last school, I, I talked... Uh, I've talked before about the persecution I suffered as a Christian. That hurt me. I felt betrayed. I felt unappreciated. I felt rejected. And I withdrew from doing those extra activities. Most of the extra activities, I withdrew from doing that. But I realize as I'm, I'm preparing this, this passage... I'm not working for them, am I? I'm not working for my students. I'm not working for the parents. I'm not working for myself. I'm working for the God who I love and I'm, who has given me everything.
It's only natural, isn't it? Our human instinct. Someone betrays you, rejects you, and you withdraw into yourself and you just don't want to give anymore. But if we're working for God, we need to be different. What better way to demonstrate God's love, to honour and bring him glory than being obedient, than by doing your very best, by submitting as a child, as a wife, by being gentle as a husband, putting your wife's uh, wife's needs first, by being a father who is patient and loving and encourages their child even when they are being at their worst, by being the employee who always gives their best regardless of how they are treated, or should I say mistreated. And also by being the best boss that you can be. If Paul can unbelievably, in first century the Roman Empire, in the first century Roman Empire, ask slaves who have no rights just to treat them justly and fairly to simulate the relationship between God and man, then Surely he can certainly ask those of us who have responsibility for those beneath us at work. It's not just those who are considered bosses. Those of us who have responsibility for others beneath us at work. People who have rights to do the same. Like fathers being primary witnesses as their example to their children of God's fatherhood. Bosses, likewise, especially to non-Christian workers. The first witness to them about what God is like is us. And that's a shocking realisation. For them to see God, they first see us. We who did not deserve love, God reached down from heaven into the murky depths, dragged us out of our sin and depravity to save us, to love us, to restore us to this relationship with him. We may have that employee or that worker who we're we're responsible for us, who is lazy or disobedient or just plain incompetent. But it wasn't that us. Before God saved us, we weren't saved because we deserved it. We weren't saved because we could do anything for ourselves to save us. We weren't saved because we shone with a moral uh, righteousness or that we were obedient at all to God's law. We weren't saved because we were nice people. But God patiently loved us and guided us through and brought us to him. And this is how a boss should behave to those who are lazy, disobedient, and just plain incompetent. You see, we love because God first loved us. So as a child, as a parent, as a wife, as a husband, as an employee or an employer, we must show the same submission as Jesus 
the same gentleness as Jesus and love, the same obedience as Christ even to death on a cross, the same patience as God. We have been shown the way and so our relationships must reflect those of Christ because that's our Lord and that's the person asking, isn't it? Let me pray. Father, these are hard, challenging, difficult teachings. Lord, help us to keep our eyes constantly on you, on your son dying on the cross for us. Lord, we pray that you continue to challenge us to change and become more like you, remembering that you humble yourself to death on a cross for us, to bring us back into a relationship with you, to remind us that we were useless, that we were incompetent, that we were lazy, that we were disobedient, and you saved us. That you are our master, you are our father, that we should submit to others who you have asked us to submit to, like we submit to you. In Jesus' name. Amen.